Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's a guy wheeling boats at the harbour moo. And hey, do you see the cruisers? The cinnamon drop I was soaking the new has tumult and stuck to my trousers. I'll soon be ringing my grandma's bell. She'll cry, come ben, my laddie. For I ken myself by the queer-like smell that the next stop's Carcaddy. Hello and welcome once again to Patented, brought to you from History Hit. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. Thank you very much for your company. That was the famous poem, Boy on the Train. Famous particularly if you come from Kirkcaldy or um, Fife or Edinburgh, around about that part of Scotland. Thank you very much to my friend Francis Gray for reading it. I was going to read it. In fact, I did read it and recorded it, but it sounded so terrible, my Kirkcaldy accent, that I binned it and gave up and did an emergency phone call to my friend Francis Gray, who's currently starring in the West End in the Harry Potter play, pleaded for her to record it during the halftime break and lo and behold she did so we owe you one thank you francis you read it beautifully you know how some towns or cities are inextricably linked to a single product so sheffield and steel for example or los angeles and the movie industry well some towns are inextricably linked to a particular smell i always think of edinburgh when i drive through edinburgh or get the train up to edinburgh you get that waft of malt from the brewery newcastle is the same, or used to be the same. I think they've moved their brewery now, which is a bit sad. Well, Kakodi in Scotland, it's the smell, or it certainly used to be the smell of linseed oil from the factories filling the air. Now, why linseed oil, you may be wondering? Well, the town of Kakodi in Scotland is forever tied to a particular product, and that product is linoleum, as in lino, as in the stuff that people used to have on their floors, still have on their floors. You're still here, right in the middle of town, and still employ about 200 people. At its peak, the linoleum industry in Kakodi was about seven different manufacturers and 7,000 people. Crikey. Angus Fotheringham is the manager of the only lino factory left in Kakodi. Lino as a product was actually patented way back in 1862 by an Englishman called Frederick Walton, and it soon became a household name. The company that Angus works for, Nairn, was once a bitter rival of Walton's, but now Walton is long gone, and Nairn is actually one of only four lino factories left in the entire world. 
In all that time, the way that they make lino has barely changed. Angus says that it's a bit like brewing beer and there's an art and a science to getting it right. It's got that same feel of a process, you know, you need to know how to make it. It's not just a straightforward recipe. You need to know the variables of the natural raw materials. You need to be able to work with it. So there is that kind of slightly artisan quality about it. Lino was so successful as a product that it played a part in its own demise when the name Lino became used as a catch-all for other inferior products. Proper Lino, the real McCoy, the stuff that Angus makes, could be due for a comeback, not only because it's fashionably retro, but because Lino is so eco-friendly, almost 100% natural and biodegradable. Essentially, it's linseed oil and pine rosin. You mix those two under heat and pressure and that forms your binder. Then you add wood flour, which is basically a recycled product from the furniture industry, and you add limestone. You mix those together with pigments. Then you calendar that, dry it in a large drying room for about three weeks, and then you coat it, and that's your linoleum. Anyway, this is the fabulously interesting story of how lino was invented and how it was rolled onto floors everywhere, from maybe your granny's kitchen to royal palaces and the Titanic, as well as its fall from grace. My guest to tell you all about this is Lily Barnes. She's the curator of a new project exploring the history of linoleum in Kakodi called Flooring the World. And it's a fascinating story. Welcome to the show, Lily Barnes. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Curator of Flooring the World. How, how, what, how did you get involved in this? It's such a, I mean, there's niche stories. It's not a niche story. It's a big story, I think. No, it is incredibly niche. <laughs> is it? Okay, good. That was me trying to be polite and then I failed to be polite. No, it is. So I've only been in the job since February and every time I've met someone new and talked about it, I've gone, oh, I'm a curator. Oh, what do you work on? And I go, oh, Lino? And they're like, what? On the floor? And they're like, oh, I thought you meant like Lino in the kitchen. And I was like, no, I do mean that. <laughs> That's really what I do. Well, the, the trouble is when we think about Lino, maybe it's just me, when I think about Lino, I think about my grandmother's house and sort of that's it. I guess it comes in and out of fashion. Well, I suppose in the art world, it became fashionable because people used to do Lino cutting, didn't they? Mm. I remember doing that when I was at college, doing Lino prints. Picasso did some, I think, which made it famous. Yeah, I have the same associations. I remember the first time I ever heard of Lino was when my great nan got Lino in her kitchen when I was probably about five or six. And that was the first time I ever heard of it. So I think a lot of people have that of, like you said, like imagining their grandma's house. And then I was talking to my dad about it and he was like, oh, I remember doing lino cuts at school and the smell of cutting into them and all of that. Yeah. So I think what you said, like those are the two sort of touchstones that people have for it. Those memories are often quite far in the past. They're associated with an older generation or with a sort of a previous way of working. Well, yeah, it does have that mid-century 50s vibe, I guess. I, I like that idea of Lino as this kind of slippery connection to the past. But before we get into the history of it all, just tell us about what you're curating, what your role is, what the project is. So I work for Five Cultural Trust. One of our venues is Kakodi Museums. And so they look after all the social history with Kakodi. 
And part of this project is just getting to grips with this industry that was a really central part of Kokodi's economy and history and social fabric for a really long time, for about a hundred years and has now sort of almost disappeared. There is still one factory in the UK still producing lino, which is in Kakadi, but this was such a ubiquitous thing that unless you live locally, not many people know about. So this project is just sort of trying to raise awareness of our collections, do more research into this history, and just kind of bring the whole story together so that more people can access it and to see the amazing collections that we have. You mentioned smell earlier on when you were talking about your great nan's place. What is it about smell and cities? Well, we've done smell on this podcast a lot. How products and inventions and things have a particular smell that link us to it. We were talked about Play-Doh and other things recently. But cities, like for example, every time I used to come into Edinburgh, you'd get that whiff of the brewery, that smell of malt and brewing. In the introduction to this, we did the famous poem, The Boy on the Train about Kokodi and about the smell of the linseed oil as he came into the stations. It's interesting how smell and history are so intrinsically linked and interesting on a city-wide scale. It really is. But the smell in Kokodi, even though there's just that one factory left now, the area where I work, where Kokodi Museum is, is right next to the train station where they have actually that poem that you mentioned, the boy on the train. They have that made out of linoleum in the train station, which is really nice. But that whole area used to be just full of factories. If you look at old photos, it was surrounded and the smell must have been overwhelming because even when I park up there sometimes, if the wind's the right way, you can smell that one factory a mile away, let alone when there were a dozen of them all in that one place. It must have been really overwhelming. For those listeners who are unfamiliar with geography, remind us where Kakadi is. Kakadi is on the fourth estuary, so it's kind of opposite Edinburgh on that river estuary. And if you're going up the coast of Britain, it's in between Edinburgh and Dundee. So it's in the county of Fife. Question two, what does lino smell of? What lino smells of is linseed. So the word linoleum just means linseed oil. The lin is linseed and the oleum is oil. And it's very difficult to say, (laughs) or it is for me. Linoleum. Yeah. It's not easy to say. It's one of those words you have to kind of pause and run it through your head a couple of times. Mm -hmm. It's like nuclear. I always get it wrong and people think I'm an idiot. Billy Connolly has a sketch about it. He's talking about why visit Scotland and visit Kakadi. And he said... Hi, Kakadi! Hi! (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. He sort of says that it went out of fashion because Scottish people couldn't say it. And so you go to a shop and go, oh, can I have some vanilla? And it's like, oh, I'll just have carpet. Forget it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, that's a good place to begin. Like, okay, why... What is linoleum? Why do we have it? Why is... Where do we even begin with the story of linoleum? (laughs) But let's just start with the origins of linoleum. What was before linoleum? What were people putting on their floors? I mean, obviously people put wood or stone on their floors Mm. and carpet. So before linoleum, there was floor covering called floor cloth, which is a really vague term. And it's vague because it has been around for a very long time and it's been made by lots of different people, pre-industrial as well as post-industrial. So it's been made in lots of different ways. It also gets called wax cloth or oil cloth. The earliest reference to it in the UK, I think, is in 1736. And it's an inventory of a place called Denham Hall that says that there's a large floor cloth included in the inventory. And what that would be would basically be some kind of fabric usually canvas, jutes or hessian, some kind of like hard wearing fabric that would then be coated on both sides with a kind of sludge. And that would have wood flour or cork dust and resin and something like that. So it would just sort of be this sort of opaque jelly. To give it a kind of structure, to give it a like a... Yeah, and it would also waterproof it. It would go from being sort of a roll of coarse textile to being this coated, flexible, waterproof thing. And it'd be waterproof on both sides. You mentioned sort of wood and stone floors. 
often the way that floor cloth would be used would be to protect a more expensive floor covering. And as things like carpets and rugs were really expensive and difficult to keep clean. And so you would have a floor cloth rug that you would put over your floor to keep it more warm and more insulated during winter and also to protect it and make it easier to clean. Okay, so we've got this stuff called floor. I don't think I've ever seen it. I can't really picture it. It's in my brain. I can't. I don't really ever remember noticing stuff called floor cloth. Presumably it doesn't really exist anymore. Not really. A lot of the British linoleum firms, so those in Kakadi and those elsewhere in the country, did continue producing floor cloth up until the first decades of the 20th century. So we have sort of price lists that have a price for linoleum floor cloth and cork carpet, which is sort of a coarser version. But it did kind of die out and was superseded by linoleum. Okay, so you've got floor cloth. What was the problem with floor cloth that led some bright spark to go, I know, I'm going to invent linoleum? So the main problem with floor cloth was, as I say, all the good things about it, easy to clean, cheap, you could have these really lovely designs on it, but it was sort of prone to cracking and was quite brittle. That was sort of the problem that they were trying to fix. And so our story with linoleum starts with a gentleman called Frederick Walton, who was from Halifax. In Yorkshire rather than Canada. In Yorkshire, yeah, the original Halifax. And he was born in 1844 and his father was an inventor and manufacturer and had a wire carding mill, which is sort of part of the textile process. What's a carding mill? You know when you see people working with like wool with two combs and they sort Oh, of... I see. yes, and you sort of pull it apart to separate them yeah. and make thread. Ah, okay. So I think that's carding. <laughs> and I think that this was like a machine and it was done with a wire machine. Right. And so a lot of his earliest experiments were trying to sort of make this machine run better. And so he was working a lot with rubber to put it on the sort of bottoms of the wires to sort of protect the fabric and to be part of that process. However, at the same time, rubber was, at that point, was basically only grew in South America, in the Amazon. And so it was mainly extracted, well, extracted by Europeans, exploiting indigenous labour and shipping it back to Europe. But that meant it was very expensive because it only came from one place and it was quite slow to produce and produced in quite small quantities. But the demand for rubber just kept going up. And so part of his early experiments with linseed oil were to try and find a rubber alternative. This sounds really apocryphal, but it is a story that he encouraged was that he left a tin of paint out and like a skin formed on top of the paint. I'm familiar with that. Yeah. (laughs) He'd done things before with like trying to make a substance out of oil and oxidising it as part of the process. But he realised that if you let it oxidise naturally on its own, so to form that skin, and then cut it up into pieces and put it back into the process, that then it would have this flexibility and it wouldn't be brittle and it wouldn't crack. It's such a classic apocryphal sounding story. You know, it's a bit like Alexander Fleming and, oh, I left my Petri dish outside. Exactly. And, oh, look, we've discovered penicillin. Sort of by mistake. I never know, will never know. No. I think we naturally enjoy these stories. Stories that are too good to check. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) He wasn't looking to make a new floor cover and this is part of the process of weaving. He was looking to make rubber for that. He was looking for an alternative to rubber. So linseed comes from the flax plant. And so that has a much wider range that it can be grown anywhere that's been associated with linen, which Kokodi was and also Belfast was traditionally. And a lot of flax was grown in Ireland, so it can be grown. Oh, there was flax grown in Kokodi. Was that the reason? There wasn't flax grown in Kokodi, but for some reason, the two just seem to have come together. I'm not really sure why, because it's the same plant, but flax has this much wider range in which it can be grown in. I think it's, I looked up, it was grown across 12 million acres of the world at the moment. Right. It's better than rubber from rubber trees and rainforests. Exactly. Yeah. So he peels off the skin of the paint, whether that happens or not. So how do we get from there to, I've just invented linoleum and it's going to cover your grandmother's floor in the 1940s? So he initially got a patent for that paint skin, basically, or the sort of 
material that he made after that and that kind of process. And he called that linoxin. And again, that was the patent for it as a rubber replacement and to sort of start all those experiments. And then in 1861, he took out another patent with his business partner, who was called Richard Beard Jr. And that was to use that material to develop a method for waterproofing cloth. And again, this was sort of something that was recognised could be a use for rubber. I think basically anything that people might have been using rubber for, he then was trying to use linoxin for. And there was another floor covering produced called Camptulicon, which is another one of these really (laughs) strange brand names. And that basically went nowhere because to try and fix the problem of the brittleness of floor cloth with Camptulicon, they'd put rubber into it to make it more flexible which it did, but it was really expensive. Ah, so really lino is just a kind of extension of floor cloth. It's like floor cloth. Okay, it's a bit brittle and it breaks if you roll it up. So let's try and make it more flexible. And hey, presto, eventually you get linoleum. Exactly, yeah. Where did the name linoleum, well, obviously it comes from Limseed, but who came up with the name? Like, at what point did linoleum get the rubber stamp as it was? Right, it's been invented. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it was a friend of his who was a clergyman and I think was into... Rubber. (laughs) <laughs> no, I think he was into um, like classical languages, like into uh, okay. Greek and Latin, and sort yeah. of said, this is a really good name. And there's a quote in one of the some of the writings about this where someone says, oh, it's such a good name that no one's ever felt the need to replace it because it just rolls off the tongue. Well, you say that, but wasn't there was a legal case, wasn't there? Wasn't there a lawsuit about the patent of linoleum? And I think Nairns of Kakodi, which we'll get into, used it, and there was a bit of a tussle. It became a bit like Hoover. It just takes over. It's exactly like Hoover. So... The sort of process was this, that after that original patent for... Do you say patent or patent? Well, it's a really good question. Honestly, <laughs> my podcast is called Patent, but it's it's patent. I mean, that's how we say it in England. I call it patent because I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but I've been pronouncing it wrong or in the Americanization of it since it. the beginning of doing this <laughs> podcast. So now it's too late to change. So I'm, I'm going with patent. You can sue me. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, talk about the legal. There was a bit of a dispute over the name and the patent patent. Yes. So once he had that initial patent for the paint skin in 1860, and then in 1863, he had mixed that oxidised linseed with cork, gum and pigments. And that was the production of linoleum. And that's a sort of structural thing. In the same way we make concrete, you put in gravel and that strengthens it. Yeah, exactly. And so that, in contrast to floor cloth, again, start with a piece of canvas, but you just spread it on one side. Yes. So you might remember from doing your lionel cuts that it has the canvas on the bottom. So it's got like a canvas backing Mm -hmm. and then a spread of linoleum on top. Lo and behold, voila. Exactly. So he then was manufacturing that at his factory in Chiswick for a couple of years until 1877, his patent expired. And at that point was when the Nairns of Kakadi, which had originally started as a canvas works, started manufacturing floor cloth in 1847. And then around this point was looking to branch into linoleum. And when the patent had expired, the process was up for grabs. So they started making linoleum to that process. But what Walton objected to was that they were using the name linoleum. And he took them to court because they said that it was descriptive of the product and the material. So to use the Hoover example, they saw linoleum as filling the place of vacuum cleaner. Frederick Walton saw linoleum as being the Hoover bit, if you know what I mean. But the judge ruled in Nairn's favour and said that basically everybody knows about linoleum and everybody calls it linoleum. On that point, did Lino just completely take off in popularity from sort of nothing? Did it just go crazy? Like people saw it and went, this is what I want. 
Yeah, so Wharton had his first linoleum factory in 1864. In Chiswick. Yeah, I think he was initially in Chiswick and then he had a bit of wrangling where I think he initially went into business with his father and brother and then that went a bit south. His dad and him seem to have had a bit of a strained relationship. I think his dad sort of saw a lot of his experiments as kind of superfluous. Yeah. And I was reading, it was quite a sad note. It said that he would often write these really long letters to his dad going, oh, this is what I'm working on. And I I really, you know, and basically asking for money, but in a very heartfelt way. And either his dad wouldn't answer or he'd send a very short note back written by somebody else with like a fraction of the money and sort of didn't believe in the enterprise. Did they get fabulously wealthy because they invented linoleum and it became so successful? I think Walton did make quite a lot of money from it. He certainly had enough that in his later life, he spent the last few decades of his life living beside Lake Como in Italy, painting watercolours and getting nice. into spiritualism. So so many inventors of that time get into spiritualism. It was so big in the 1800s. It was the inventor of the condom talking about rubber products, <laughs> was really into seances and spiritualism and talking to dead people. It was just really fashionable. I think it just comes with the territory. I think if you got into a circle where it's like, oh, everyone in my circle is interesting and everyone is sort of doing their own experiments. And I think everyone sort of thought of themselves as an experimenter at home and sort of saw seances as part of that. We'll be back after this short break. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Lily, let's talk about why Lino became so successful. I know you've got some pictures of it, of sort of early Lino that we can look at. To go back after he sets up that first factory in 1864 in Staines in Middlesex, 
1865, they're producing 53,000 square yards per annum. That's what their orders are coming in. Crikey. And did they advertise? Like, how did people know about lino? Was there a marketing program or...? The way linoleum is made has been made in the past sort of 160 years and also the way it's been marketed has really stayed quite similar to me or there seems to be some quite clear themes that continue to come out. So in those images that you have in front of you, there's one that's sort of a metal advert for a lino company based in Forshager in Sweden. Can you see that one? I can see it. It's a lovely photo, two pictures side by side of women cleaning. Yeah. So on the left, you have this woman who I think is really... On her knees in a pinafore. Yeah. And I think the depiction of her is really coded as very, um, especially compared to the woman on the right, as very working class versus middle class. Yeah. She's got a scrubbing brush in her hand and she's desperately scrubbing the floor. Is this a kind of before and after type thing? Exactly. I think it says for on her side and then new on the other one, which I assume is before and now in Swedish, but I don't know. I think you're right. (laughs) But yes, on the left-hand side, the woman's having a very hard time scrubbing her floor on her knees with soap and a scrubbing brush. And on the right, a very elegant looking lady, red pinafore, gently gliding across with a broom or a mop across her beautiful linoleum with pictures of flowers on. Yeah. As you say, she's very well made up. She's smiling. She's got this very trim waist, lovely dress. She's got a big cottage loaf haircut. And the other woman almost looks like she's got sweat or tears sort of coming off of her because she's scrubbing, scrubbing so frantically. And that's one of the big selling points of linoleum and always has been. And compared to other floor coverings, it's very easy to clean, especially compared to carpet or things like wood and stone that you would have to take ages on. It is much lower maintenance and it's much more durable than a lot of other cheap alternatives. So obviously clean, practical, nice patterns, democratic, affordable. I can see why linoleum became popular. And so Kakodi in Scotland became the centre of world linoleum because of, you mentioned the name Nairns. Just tell us who Nairns was and how this great empire developed. Sure. The Nairn family, so the main person we're talking about there, or the first person we're talking about, is Michael Nairn, who was initially a canvas merchant and had this canvas making factory. The link of why he sort of maybe got interested in floor cloth was because a lot of the canvas they produced was for sales and for the sort of shipping industry. And so looking at sort of waterproofing and making things more durable was something that was on the horizon. And so floor cloth had that in it, that sort of waterproofed element. He basically jumps on floor cloth and starts producing loads of it and sunk quite a lot of money into it and did a lot of innovation around it in quite a short time. So from building the factory in 1847, 30 years later, they are the leader in the field internationally. As a result of this, they started getting commissions from a lot of, we were speaking about it being democratic, started getting a lot of commissions from, there was a quote that said that there was scarcely a royal family in Europe who had not in use in one or other of their palaces some floor cloth from his Kakadi factory. So it was sort of put into circulation on the sort of highest echelons as well. And so then when they get into linoleum, they have this kind of pedigree and this history of being working on this for ages. And they're sort of a trusted firm in a way as well. And so there is sort of, I think, again, it was seen as a risk to sort of diversify into something new. But I guess by this point, it was one of his descendants saw it as a risk worth taking, one of Michael Nairn's descendants. That's one of the great bits of advice, ladies and gentlemen. Diversify. When new trends come along, don't run away from them. Don't fight them. You've got to diversify. Like podcasting. <laughs> like podcasting. I'm like, I know, exactly. I'm like, damn yeah. podcasts. <laughs> Everyone's got a podcast. Exactly. I'm not going to do a podcast. And then... Sense. Sense made me see. Anyway, so yes, they diversified into linoleum. And Kakodi became the world centre of linoleum. It wasn't just Nairns. I know other factories sprung up and it just became this sort of great centre. And did they export around the world? Did it become a kind of great global thing? 
And Kukadi presumably became very prosperous as a result. Absolutely. In terms of them sort of exporting, my two fun places for where linoleum pops up, that there was, well, was and is to this day, linoleum on the Titanic. Ah. Yeah, look up the pictures of the wreck site. You can see these red and white tiles that we think were made by a Kakodi firm. We're not sure who, but we found reference in some of the later pattern books that they were producing linoleum for the White Star Line and the Cunard Line ships. We'll send James Cameron down in his submarine and see if he can, see if he can get us a piece, yeah. And then the other thing was that it was on Tsar Nicholas II's like pleasure yacht that he had just before the Russian Revolution had linoleum on the decks. Why? Okay, so I'm going to just move the story on a bit. Obviously, it went into a decline because new materials like vinyl came along. And presumably, like linoleum is a natural product. Yeah. And then the plastics came along in the 1950s and, and vinyl took over. Tell me about the decline of sort of factories in Kokodi. So we've got Kokodi churning out this linoleum. It's very fashionable all over the world. Factories everywhere. Everyone in Kakodi works there. And it did go into decline. When did that happen? This time when you really start to see the big manifestations of that and the big repercussions of that is in the early 60s. Sales have been declining. It's strange because we think of Lino as being so synonymous with that mid-century, with the sort of post-Second World War period. But it was from then that it got a bit of a boost after the Second World War. But then after that, it does sort of start to trail off. And part of that is because, as you said, because of the introduction of vinyls which I think is twofold. So firstly, there's a new thing that is a new cheap floor covering. And also I think that for later generations, returning to our granny's kitchens, I think what my great nan had in her kitchen that she called lino was actually vinyl. We sort of associate it as cheap and not very durable. And actually what we're describing is vinyl. We've got some pieces of lino in our collection that were sort of put into houses in the 1870s and taken up in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and they look great. Like, it can be so durable. So I think that basically vinyl was cheaper. I guess fashions were changing more quickly, so you might not put down a floor and want it to stay for 40 years, so you don't want to invest as much money in it. And also the sort of bad reputation of vinyl kind of gloms onto linoleum, and all of that comes together. So by the early 60s, you've got Nairns, so the original firm, and Barry's, which began as Shepherd and Beverage, then was Barry Osler and Shepherd, and they were the sort of second biggest and second oldest firm in Kakodi. And in 1963, they announced that they were going to move basically all of their production to Staines in Middlesex, where Frederick Walton had had his factory at one point. And so that meant, I think it was the loss of 1,500 jobs, and that meant basically all of those buildings around the station that I mentioned earlier were all just demolished by the end of the decade. It's interesting how innovation and inventions and fashions completely change the fabric of a city itself. Boom and bust and boom and bust and change. And I mean, so many people in Kokodi worked in that industry. And then as fashions change, you'd have people losing their jobs. Sort of Kokodi at its heights, obviously it's near Edinburgh. What would the town have been like? Was it a prosperous town? Was it a town on the up? It was a much more sort of bustling and busy place. And there was this energy of something going on. In the same year that Barry's has its big closures in 1963 is when the Beatles played a gig in Kakadi and it's this like legendary <laughs> event that happened. And I think holding those two things together kind of shows you that there was still sort of this energy around the place then. Yeah. But I think that once the industry did start to taper off more decidedly, because at the same time, one of Kakadi's other industries was coal mining, which obviously in the decades 60s through to the 80s was also in a big decline. And so the two things sort of happened at the same time. 
it was a town that was sort of like built up with linoleum and then also sort of a lot of its buildings came down with linoleum as well. So it's changed massively. Tell me about Kokodi now. If I get the train to Kokodi, I haven't taken the train to Kokodi for a long time, I'll be honest. Does it still smell of linseed? Sometimes, if the wind is right. <laughs> <laughs> so Kokodi, just very briefly, you work in the museum there. Just tell us what Kokodi is like now and the work that you do. Yeah, where I work, the museum and the garden that it's in is probably one of the bits that's changed the least because when you look at these old aerial photos and these old maps, that's a bit where you can always... That's how I always find my place because it's very easy to see. Basically, all of the old factories are gone. There's the one on Den Road, which is still producing. Some have been demolished and things have been rebuilt there. Some have been demolished and are still waiting to be rebuilt. It's definitely a much more quiet place than it used to be. But the people there are still very in touch with that history because it wasn't very long ago. Is the ghost of linoleum still haunting the city? Are the people who worked in the factory still there? What about their children? What are they doing? Or do they move to Edinburgh? Or It's quite strange, actually. So when I started this, as I say, when I tell people what I do, I sort of have to give five to ten minutes of explanation afterwards. But in Fife, more specifically, because also there were another floor cloth and linoleum factory in Newborough, which is on the Tay estuary a little further up. And there was another one in Falkland, where Falkland Palace is. So it was an industry that sort of spread across the county. But whenever you mention it to someone in Fife, they always know exactly what you're talking about. You don't need to give any preamble. And they usually say, oh, my mum, dad, cousin, granddad, whatever, worked at NEMS for this amount of time in this place. Like everyone is very in touch and knows. A lot of the people that I've spoken to will have a relative that worked there. And that will be something that they know about and are aware of. I think it's a lovely story that I love stories where inventions and innovation really taps into the fortunes of a town and becomes part of the fabric of people's lives and a bit like the backing of linoleum. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> or the cork or the wood that you put in, it becomes all part of the same thing. Human lives and the fortunes of cities and innovation and inventions and industries. It's really interesting. It's really lovely. You're not from Kikoti. <laughs> no, what gave me away? <laughs> How the heck did you end up in Kikoti? I love Kokodi, by the way. I love it as well. I grew up not too far away from there. So. Oh, yeah? Where did you grow up? In Perthshire. So okay. Yeah, not too far. You know, not too far. Yeah, I'm from Essex originally. I moved back to England for about a year. But other than that, I've been living here for 10 years. I went to university in Fife. I moved around. I've lived in Edinburgh and in Dundee and in Fife. And now I'm in Leith. So I'm pretty much opposite Kokodi. Sunshine in Leith. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's a fine place to be. Thank you so much for taking the time and telling us this story. It is a great story. It's a lovely story. I love the poem about the boy in the train is so great. And, and anyone who's taken the trains around Edinburgh will be familiar with some of the places that we've been talking about. It's a wonderful history. It's a wonderful story. Really interesting invention. I, I'm going to look at Lino completely differently now. And it's become quite hipster. If you're interested in floor <laughs> coverings, get into Lino again. It's the new thing. Forget about your yeah. parquet and your stone tiles. Great. Thank you, Lily. Great. Thank you so much. That's it for this particular episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. I love really, really niche stories, niche histories about places that I've heard of with secret histories that link to secret products, things that I knew nothing about. And I'm going to think about Kokodi in a completely different way. Next time I cross the Firth of Forth, next time you cross the Firth of Forth, don't forget to look to your right if you're heading north to the town of Kokodi. Breathe in the air 
Perhaps through the smell of the Edinburgh breweries, you, you might be able to pick up the scent of linseed oil. Don't forget, if you've got an idea for something you would like us to cover, get in touch. We've done a few of your ideas already, and it's always great when listeners suggest things and we get to do them. Leave us a rating and a review if you're feeling particularly generous. We would love that. We will see you next time. Look forward to your company. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.